DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University, and he has dedicated many years to an extensive ministry of retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching about the spiritual life. Father Gallagher is the author of seven books published by the Crossroad Publishing Company on the spiritual teaching of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is featured on the EWTN series, Living the Discerning Life, the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Father Gallagher. Thank you. The discernment of spirits is based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. I suppose we should give him some special attention before we begin to find out who it is that was led to this inspiring gift for us all. It was the remarkable gift of St. Ignatius, he, who is a 16th century Spaniard, one of the great figures of holiness in Spain at that time. St. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross came a little bit, just a few years later, that he not only had spiritual experience, as we all do, the ups and downs that we described last time we were speaking, but he was attentive to it and was able to formulate it into words. Toward the end of his life, he told one of his Jesuit companions that, and certainly what has to be one of the great understatements in our Catholic spiritual tradition, that he wrote the exercises because he thought that some things that he had found in his own experience might be useful to others, which tells us that this text of 14 rules that we're exploring in these uh, conversations did not arise from study in a library. They arose from the stuff of daily life, the kind of stuff and experience and ups and downs and struggles and joys that we all experience in the spiritual life that Ignatius then, in noticing, was able to formulate and describe and then give guidelines in terms of responding concretely to this sort of experience. So as you'd expect, this teaching first began in Ignatius' own experience at a critical moment, the transforming moment in his life when he was 30 years old, roughly. You know how when we speak of saints, there's a kind of spectrum. Mm -hmm. On the one end of the spectrum, you'd have probably the classic example would be St. Augustine. People whose lives are dramatically far from God, as Augustine's was for 20 years. Right. Very much a life far from God and of sinfulness and the rest. And then at some moment, they experience some kind of dramatic conversion and then begin to live lives of great holiness. And on the far end of the, of the spectrum, you'd have people like St. Therese of the Child Jesus, I suppose, probably Blessed uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. John Bosco, and many others, people who seem to just start very close to God and then just keep getting closer. Maybe St. Therese of the Child Jesus would almost be the, the perfect image of that kind of sanctity. And of course, there's a wide range in between. But if we um, look at that spectrum of the saints, St. Saint Ignatius is solidly right over here with St. Augustine. Till he was 30, he was, well, let's just say it this way. There probably wasn't any of the Ten Commandments that he didn't break in some pretty serious way. That was very delicate of you, Father. 
Well, we're speaking of a saint. <laughs> we're speaking of a saint. Well, let me just give some illustrations. When, okay. when Augustine, uh, when Ign Saint Ignatius was 24, he went back to his native town of Aspasia up in northwestern Spain. His family home is still there. Mm -hmm. And that night, he committed what the the legal document, together with a brother of his, what the legal document simply calls an enormous crime. The moment it was discovered the next morning, Ignatius immediately fled, or he would have clearly fallen into the hands of the law. Maybe just one more illustration of these things. Wow. Yeah. Um, we have documents which show St. Ignatius for three consecutive years asking permission from the king of Spain to carry a sword in public, which would be the equivalent of legal permission to carry firearms, I think you could say today, mm -hmm. and to be accompanied by two attendants. And the reason that he gives is that there is a man who is utterly determined to take his life. And in fact, this man takes concrete steps toward that goal. Now, we don't know exactly what Ignatius did to so anger this man, but knowing the way he was living at the time, it's not too hard to at least imagine or guess something of what may have been at work. And then just one more little vignette of this. When Ignatius is now in Pamplona, as the moment of his conversion is getting closer, he's walking through the streets, the narrow streets of this small Spanish city, one day when a group of young men come down the street from the other direction toward him, there are political tensions behind this. And the witnesses tell us that if Ignatius had not been restrained, he would have drawn his sword and neither killed or been killed. This is Ignatius until the age of, th of 30, just filled with dreams of, of worldly honor and worldly glory and romantic exploits and feats of arms and, and all the rest. Then Ignatius inspires what is a hopeless defense of the city of Pamplona against an overwhelming force of, this, of French who come south of the border. Standing high in the city walls, his, a cannonball passes between his legs, which are shattered. He falls, and with his fall, the Spaniards actually, they all simply surrender the city. The French were very impressed with the, the courage of this 30-year-old Spaniard and brought him back to his native home in Aspasia on a litter, a journey of some days. Now, when Ignatius gets back and the doctors look at his leg, the leg has not set properly, whether because on the battlefield the French surgeons didn't set it well or because in the jostling of the return trip his um, leg was rebroken. And they tell him the leg is going to have to be rebroken and set again. Ouch. And of course, this is without anesthesia. Oh, you know, all of this. ouch. Yeah. And Ignatius tells us that he goes through it without any exterior sign or cry other than simply the clenching of his fist. Mm. There's something, there's a kind of courage and energy always in Ignatius' life when he's worldly and later when he gives his life to God. He survives barely that operation, comes to the point of death, so much so that the doctors give him up for dead and then pulls through. But the story doesn't end because at this point, Ignatius now looks at his leg and beneath the knee, one bone protrudes over another so that the leg is shorter than the other and also it's unseemly. It's ugly. And Ignatius, who is so concerned about his appearance in the eyes of others, refuses to go through life this way and insists with the doctors that they remove the protrusion, the part um, where one bone lies on top of the other. The doctors themselves are afraid to do it because they know this is going to be more painful yet than anything. He's Again, all of this is without anesthesia. He insists and they do it. And after they've done it, Ignatius simply goes through that again without making any exterior sign. 
very slowly now, the leg begins to heal. They're applying ointments, weights to try to stretch it. And Ignatius gradually becomes healthy in every way except that he can't walk. And the time hangs heavily on his hands. And so he asks for reading. What he has in mind is the kind of reading, for example, that's parodied in Don Quixote, you know, feats of armor and, and those knights and chivalry and the rest. Mm-hmm. They'd be the popular novels of his day. But his sister-in-law, the lady of the house, is God's instrument for him because she gives him the only two books she has. And one is A Life of Christ and the other is a volume with Lives of the Saints. Somewhat unwillingly, but to pass the time, Ignatius begins to read. And this is where something now will begin to change. For the first time in his life, Ignatius begins to realize that there's another kind of heroism. There are other kinds of exploits and deeds of honor and glory. And here is his famous question. As he reads about the saints, he finds himself asking himself, what if I should do what St. Francis did? What if I should do what St. Dominic did? What if I should try to serve God with the heroism that these men and women displayed in serving God? At the same time, something else is uh, capturing his thoughts. He doesn't name the person. He simply tells us that he spends many hours, day after day, thinking of how he'll win the favor of a certain lady. The deeds of arms and the verses that he'll write, how he'll travel to where she lives and win her favor. Although he tells us in his autobiography, where he tells this story, that in the aristocratically stratified culture of his day, Ignatius, who is a member of the nobility, but very minor local nobility in a corner of Spain, is never going to have access to a woman, he tells us, whose stature is higher than that of a countess or a duchess, probably royalty. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, the scholars have wondered who the lady might have been. One of the very real possibilities is that this was Catherine, the younger sister of Charles, the king of Spain. Ignatius would have seen her once or twice in his days as a kind of page in the household of the royal treasurer. And so two things are capturing his thoughts. What we could call a worldly project, how he'll win the favor of this woman, and what we could call a holy project, a life lived, what if I should do what the saints did? What if I should seek this kind of heroism? And this is going on day after day after day as Ignatius lies on his convalescent bed. And then a day of grace comes when for the first time it dawns on Ignatius that while he's thinking about the worldly project and all that he'll do to win the favor of this lady, although as he recognizes there's a quality of unreality in this, he's never even going to have access to her. While these thoughts are engaging in themselves when he's thinking them, when he sets them aside, his heart remains kind of dry and discontent, not really fulfilled or happy or satisfied in some sense. While he's thinking the thoughts of imitating the saints, his heart is engaged and and, and enthused by this. But when he sets those thoughts aside and goes on with the day, his heart remains happy and consoled and content. This is going on day after day. Both sets of thoughts are engaging in themselves, but one leaves his heart dry and the other leaves his heart happy. This is going on day after day after day, but he doesn't see it, doesn't know it's happening. Mm -hmm. Until, as he tells us so simply you could miss it in his autobiography, one day his eyes were opened a little. And for the first time he sees it. One set of thoughts leave his heart empty. Another set of thoughts leave his heart happy. And this pattern repeats over and over again. Each time he dedicates himself, as he's doing intensely, to one set of thoughts or or the other. 
Now, Ignatius being Ignatius, he doesn't just notice this and go on with the day. He marvels at it. He stops, wonders what it means. He tells us he reflects on it, he thinks about it, he ponders it, he explores it, until gradually he begins to see that a set of thoughts which are engaging in themselves but which leave his heart empty do not have the feel of where God is leading in his life. And a different set of thoughts which are also engaging in themselves but which leave his heart happy begin to have the feel of where God really is leading in his life. And from the moment that Ignatius understands this, never a man of half measures, he takes action accordingly. And from that day on will reject the thoughts of what we're calling the worldly project and embraces absolutely the thoughts of imitating the saints and the holy project. And in fact, as soon as his leg is healed, really before it's even properly healed, but as soon as he can travel, Ignatius sets off across Spain on a mule, goes to Montserrat near Barcelona, mm -hmm. spends three days preparing and making a life-changing confession, goes to nearby Manresa, spends the better part of a year there in prayer and living with and serving the poor in a hostel uh, in that city, going to church in the morning for, for mass in the evening for uh, the divine office evening prayer, and hours in a kind of a cave on the bank of the river over which the town is built in prayer each day. And it's there that the exercises, the spiritual exercises, really are born. Goes on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and a life of sanctity is underway. Now, at this point, I'd like to ask a question, if we, if we could. Sure. What if, what if that day, St. Ignatius' eyes had not been opened just a little? What would have been different in his life? Most likely, his life would have been like that of all of his brothers, every one of whom lived a life that was not at all in, in, in keeping with the faith that they professed. Ignatius became the one exception of the men in his family. What would have been different, for example, in the life of his companions in Paris, St. Francis Xavier and the Church in Asia, and other Jesuit saints, St. Edmund Campion in the next century and the Church in England, St. Isaac Jogues and the Jesuit saints here in our own country, St. Peter Claver and the Church in South America. Well, among many other things that would have been different, Chris, you and I wouldn't be here right now right. having this conversation, and those who are listening would not be listening to this teaching. The ripple effects of grace from that moment when one man's eyes were opened just a little and he began to notice spiritual experience in his heart and in his thoughts, that is, he began discerning. The ripple effects of grace of that moment simply continue expand, to expand down through five centuries and continue to grow throughout the church today. And at this point now, I'd like to ask a second question. What will happen in our lives, yours and mine, and those of our listeners, if we live with our spiritual eyes opened also just a little? To begin to be aware of interior spiritual experience in our hearts and in our thoughts. Begin like Ignatius to be able to reflect on it and work with it so that we can name what is of God and should be accepted and followed and name what is not of God and should be firmly set aside. What will happen in our lives? The same things that happened in the life of Ignatius, the beginning of a whole new journey of spiritual transformation and growth and renewal in the church. This is how renewal comes when individuals, when their eyes are opened, they begin to live in a whole new closeness with God. 
That's why, that's what keeps me traveling around the country speaking about discernment of spirits. This is not just a teaching to know conceptually, as rich as that is, but this is a life, living the discerning life. And it makes everything different in our lives. So this is what discernment of spirits is. It's born right out of the experience of St. Ignatius, being aware of, noticing interior spiritual experience in our hearts and thoughts, working with it until we understand it, what's of God and what isn't, and then taking spiritual action, accepting what is of God, name what is not of God and should be firmly set aside. We'll return in just a moment to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. The Oblates of the Virgin Mary are a group of priests and brothers founded early in the 19th century by the Venerable Father Pio Bruno Latari. Venerable Latari, a priest from northern Italy, always insisted that the Virgin Mary is the foundress of the congregation. All Oblates look to her with devotion as a model in the imitation of Jesus and a sign of hope to all believers. The Oblates treasure every opportunity to accompany souls for a time of retreat. Venerable Latari considered the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius a sure method for everyone to become a saint, a great saint, and quickly. There are a number of reasons for this, including that the exercises are designed to meet each person right where he or she is. The Oblates are experts at adapting retreats to meet the needs and schedules of each person who come in search of the Lord. Blessed to have a retreat house of their own, are now coordinating all retreats from this location, even if they are offered elsewhere. To acquire about the possibility of a retreat at St. Joseph Retreat House or with an Oblate director at some other location, or to inquire about the possibilities of a parish mission in your location, go to omvusa.org. That's omvusa.org, the website for the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. We now return to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father, for Ignatius, that moment when his eyes were open just a little and he was able to see, is, was that an extraordinary grace that God bestowed just upon him, or are those moments available to us as well? They are available to all of us. I would say that it was extraordinary in this sense, that Ignatius was given the gift of a clarity that he was able to name and describe and teach to others for the sake of many others, so that they too, in their ordinary daily spiritual experience, could live with their eyes open. This was just a man on his convalescent bed. This was not a martyr at at the critical moment of giving his life to God. This was ordinary. It was illness and recovery. It was at home. The places where we live, the kinds of experiences we all go through, so that we are all invited to, all of us can live with our spiritual eyes opened a little so that we begin to notice and know how to respond to it. As you were speaking, I know from my experience, and I think maybe others out there who are hearing this and listening may have had the same type of moment where all of a sudden I flashed back to a moment back in my early 20s where I had a moment like that where I had 
out of nowhere. And it seemed like a little choice. Do I go here or do I go there? And there's that moment where you almost feel like you're outside and you get a glimpse from a different place. I don't know how else to describe it. At the time, I didn't even appreciate that it was the Holy Spirit, there was God that was guiding me or nudging me in a certain way. I wonder if we probably have many of those moments in our lives and that many people out there, if they were to go back right now and to think or to, to remember, to ponder, they probably had those opportunities. Sure, because it's happening all the time. If it's happening to a man as he's not feeling well and is lying on his bed trying to recover, it can happen when you're driving the car, when you're walking from the office to the next appointment, when you put down the phone and before the next occupation, when you're working at home. It can happen because it's ongoing. God is always at work. And there is also a tempter who is consistently attempting to lead us where God doesn't want us to go. So this is ongoing. What will happen is... Learning discernment of spirits, learning these 14 guidelines will take us from a situation in life in which this is happening all the time, like it was for Ignatius, as it was going on day after day after day, but before his eyes were opened a little, he didn't know it. It will take us from that situation to the situation on the other side of having our eyes opened a little bit when this is going on, and now we see it. Mm -hmm. Now we can name it. Once that happens, yes, then we'll be able to look back over our life and we'll see that it was always there. But we have a new set of spiritual eyes with which to understand what's always been happening. Which makes an important point. In these 14 rules, St. Ignatius is not adding anything to our spiritual life. What he's doing is giving us eyes to see and understand what has always been happening. That's why people love this teaching so much, because St. Ignatius is revealing to them a part of themselves that they've always been experiencing but haven't known how to name or understand and so haven't known how to respond. Everything now can move forward. Be aware, notice it, understand it, what's of God, what isn't, and take action, accept and reject. You're talking about a significant paradigm shift. It's absolutely, what else can I say? Paradigm shift is a great way to say it. I can't tell you, Chris, how many times as I teach this People will share experiences with me. I'm thinking right now of, of a woman who told me that she'd learned this teaching and one day was just walking along outside. Some of the spiritual struggles were there when it clicked and she said, this is what Ignatius is talking about. I love hearing about that because that's the point when now her eyes are opened a little. And once we've seen it once, if like Ignatius, we don't just let the moment go by, but we ponder it, reflect on it, work with it, and learn from it, then that can repeat, that can become a way of life. I'd say now, it's it's 31 years that I've been a priest at this point, so let's say it's close to 30 years since I first began seriously studying this. And what I am finding in my own experience, I'm not always at my best spiritually, as I imagine most of us aren't always, mm-hmm. uh, but increasingly as the years go by, I find it possible to to understand what's going on in my heart and thoughts spiritually in the light of these rules. And I love it because it does just what we said the last time we spoke. It sets a captive free. Once I understand, you know that that experience in the spiritual life when we know something's going on, 
-hmm. and it's weighing on us, but we don't know what it is. And because we don't know what it is, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond. Well, if we can be aware of what's going on, understand it, know what's of God and what isn't, and know how to respond, that's, again, that's what sets the captive free to make these choices. So this is all of us. It is a paradigm shift. On the other side of the paradigm shift is a wonderful journey of spiritual transformation. Talk about not understating things is vitally important as we move forward in this to understand the big three. To be aware, to understand, and then to take action. Sometimes to take action is to take no action. But those three, be aware of the situation, that was key for Ignatius, wasn't it? That's how it all starts. In his simple phrase, one day his eyes were opened a little, and he becomes aware. He notices. Let me just uh, read to you. Why don't I actually just read the text which is the beginning of the text of the rules in which St. Ignatius sort of codifies in packed language the experience that we just um, reviewed. And he says that these are rules for becoming aware. And there you see the first step, be aware. Mm -hmm. And understanding, there's the second step, now to make spiritual sense out of what I have become aware of. Rules for becoming aware and understanding to some extent, there you see his eyes were opened a little, we're not going to understand everything. But what we will understand, as in Ignatius' case, will be enough to transform us. Rules for becoming aware and understanding to some extent the different movements, that's that dryness or that delight, the thoughts that go on, which are caused in the soul, the good to receive them. If they're of God, this is the take action, the third step. If they're good of God, like St. Ignatius' delight in living like the saints, the good to receive them, then there's the action, we accept them and the bad to reject them. If they're not of God, obviously, we set them aside so that they don't lead us astray. And that's how Ignatius describes what discernment of spirits is. The big three is a good way of saying it. <laughs> Be aware, understand, take action, which means accept what is of God, reject what is of the enemy. In closing this particular segment, what would you advise the listener? I think the same need that we discussed last time is still pretty critical. Uh, it's not yet time to do too much acting probably on this, but still time to be learning. I'm always a little hesitant to speak about my own book, but you did mention it last time. Mm -hmm. I would I would love to have the listener, if the listener really wants to pursue this, get the book and read the prologue chapter in which I teach and kind of go through and describe what we've tried to cover in some fashion in this uh, in this setting here. So that would be the first piece. Try to learn more about this. Having said that, it might not be a bad idea just to begin in some very simple ways just to start trying to notice what's going on. When I pray, what happens? As I try to serve the Lord throughout the day, what's going on in my heart and in my thoughts? Just to begin to notice that. And I think that'd be a wonderful initial step. Wonderful. Thank you, Father Timothy Gallagher my privilege again. You've been listening to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, 
I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our mission. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher.